Psalm 23, verse number 1. The Bible says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. No matter how many times we read that psalm, doesn't it just minister? Don't the words just soak into your soul? Don't you feel good when you read the Word of God? It truly is medicine. It's medicine to our body. It's medicine to our minds. It's medicine to our flesh. It's medicine to our spirits and our emotions. And today, in our study of Psalm 23, my focus is the end of verse number 2. It says, He leads me beside still waters, and my subject is the antidote for worry, the antidote for worry. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, would you minister by your grace and by your power, by the anointing of the Holy Spirit to the hearts of every person who hears this word today at any of our campuses and any other day that it may come across their path. We pray in Jesus' name. And everybody says, you may be seated. As we come to the text, which by now we know is David's boast of God's greatness and God's faithfulness when he was on the mountaintop, but also, and more importantly, perhaps, when he was in the valleys. And we find David revealing to us a revelation of God that he discovered through his experience as a shepherd. And this, quite frankly, is something that awes me about God, that he would choose to reveal himself to us through things that we know and things that we understand, through through the life experiences that we have and the, the stuff that we've gone through and the, the jobs that we've had and all of those experiences are opportunities for God to reveal himself to us. And so maybe to a doctor, he truly is the great physician, or to a nurse, he's the ultimate caretaker, and to a lawyer, he might be an advocate, to an educator, a teacher, to an economist, maybe he's a provider, to a carpenter, a builder, to a widow, a husband, to a fatherless, the greatest father of all, through whatever experience. But to David, he is a shepherd. He is the good shepherd of our souls. And this blows my mind that God explains or or reveals himself this way, because the truth is God really never explains himself. He only reveals himself. Because if he explained himself, it would have a lot to do with our intellect. And for God to only communicate with us or reveal himself only through explanation, people who were smarter than other people would have an advantage, wouldn't they? They would, you know, smarter people, more intelligent people would know God better if it was just about explanation. But I love the fact that God doesn't just explain himself, he reveals himself. Because then really doesn't matter how smart you are, because God can talk to you at any level of understanding that you need him to. And so God can make himself real to a two-year-old, a four-year-old, or a 50-year-old, or a hundred-year-old, because it's based on revelation, not explanation. And we come to the latter part of the text, and David is revealing to us a dimension of God that I find, or that he found, and I find, tremendous comfort in. He calls him the shepherd that leads him beside the still waters. And this is such a word picture here. It is a picture of peace and tranquility. Have you ever rode by a lake and it's perfectly still? 
And just taking that moment in and immediately you feel this peace and this tranquility wash over you. And this really resonates with me because when I need a calm on the inside of me, I go down to the water. I always go down to the water and I go happen to have a beach right in my subdivision. And on Mondays, nobody is ever there. And I love it that nobody's ever there. Because I'll go down to the water and I'll just sit and I'll just take it in. No texts. No emails, no phone calls, no noise, no other person, just me and God. And I look out over the water and I just just take in all of the beauty of God's creation and let it sink in. I, I listen to the birds chirping. I listen to the waves just breaking on the beach and I just soak all that in and, and somehow, some way, those moments that I grab in those quiet places where it's just me, God, and nature create this calm on the inside, this, this peace and this tranquility on the inside of us that we all need throughout the chaos of life. The still waters of the good shepherd, that's our promise to the big burlap bag of worry that you and I seem to lug around. The what-ifs and the how-wills of worry have a big price tag to them. What if I, I never ma- meet somebody or get married? What if I develop the same disease and die that my parent died of? What if I never achieve my dreams? What if after dieting they discover that lettuce is fattening and chocolate isn't? Oh, no! How will I pay for my kids' college? How will I get everything done on time? How will I ever recover from this? What a burden to be laden with. Worry has a high price tag. So many things that I could say about worry, but first of all, it's a waste of energy. Matter of fact, did you know that there's a book out there? It's, it's called The Stress-Proof Brain. And in the book they, book, they document how 85% of the things that we worry about never come to pass. And in a world where we're always complaining about not having enough time, what a waste of time and energy. How many of you know that you only have so much energy to expend in any one given day? And so you have to use it wisely. You have to conserve energy. The reason why so many people don't succeed is they spend all their energy on stuff that consumes it and sucks it up in unproductive ways. And worry is one of those unproductive ways. It has many consequences, physical consequences. We all have heard of this before, that worry and stress are responsible for high blood pressure and heart disease and stroke and asthma and obesity. Because how many of you know when you're stressed out, if you're like me, it's going down. Right? You just eat whatever's close when you're stressed out, right? You don't even think about it anymore. You just, I need, I need some comfort. And you show all that comfort food, macaroni and cheese and bread and carbs and pasta and all cakes and herbs. It's going down. Obesity, asthma, depression, gastrointestinal problems, because after you eat like that, you're going to have problems. Alzheimer's, accelerated aging and even premature death. Have you ever seen what people look like when they've been under stress and worry for a period of time. They look ugly. Even pretty people look ugly when they worry a lot. Worry has a lot of consequences, physical, but beyond the physical are the implications both to us functionally and spiritually. When there's not a calm on the inside, we are incapable of properly dealing with the chaos on the outside of us, and we lose our ability to function in the way that God created us to. And so we make poor decisions, or we're paralyzed from making decisions. 
Worry either does one of those two things, right? It either gets you in a mode where your energy is not focused and your, your mind is not focused so you make a bad decision or you feel so flooded in a particular moment that you can't make any particular decision. Worry has a, has an, uh, adverse effects on our functionality. Said another way, when the chaos on the outside gets on the inside, the results are never good. But those that can slow down on the inside, when everything is speeding up on the outside, you're at an advantage in life. And, and the best way I could describe this to you, because I'm a sports fan, is the great NFL quarterbacks are the ones they say the game slows down for. Right? Danny Dimes, by the way, it hasn't slowed down for him yet. That was a giant comment right there. What do they mean by the, the game slows down? Well, do you know the average NFL quarterback has 2.33 seconds to decide what he's going to do with, with the ball? 2.33 seconds. Everything is coming out. Defenders coming to the fastest and best athletes in the world. The strongest athletes in the world coming to him to try to knock his block off. And he's got to decide in 2.33 seconds. He's often got three, four, five progressions that he's got to go to to see which receiver is open and where the defense is going and where the attack is coming from. Do I step up in the pocket? Do I spin out? Do I run with the ball? Do I tuck it and go? What do I do? Do I just throw it out of bounds? 2.33 seconds is not a lot of time to make decisions under pressure, but they say the best NFL quarterbacks, the game is slow for them. It's almost like 2.33 seconds seems like an eternity for them. They could read things instantaneously because they've learned not to control the chaos on the outside but to be calm on the inside when everything else is speeding up. And Jesus was the master at being calm on the inside when everything around him was chaotic. And one time, this, the ruler of the synagogue, Jairus, you remember him, really rich, powerful man, comes running to Jesus. His daughter is at the point of death. He says, come on, Jesus, you've got to come now. There's this big crowd in between them. Jairus is running and Jesus is walking. Jesus is calm even though the situation is chaotic. And he walks so, so, so calmly that he has enough time to stop and minister to somebody else, even though Jairus has got an urgent need. I don't know about you, but I'm glad God can minister to more than one people at the same time. That's why it never bothers me if God gives you his attention, because I know God is not limited by time and space. And if God gives you attention, all it tells me is that God is going to eventually get to me and give me attention. And so Jesus ministers to her and Jairus. He was a master at remaining calm in the middle of chaotic situations. Another time, he was in in a boat with his disciples, and this big storm arose, and Jesus was sleeping in the middle of the storm. He was calm when everything else was chaotic. And he woke up because the disciples were afraid. He said, peace be still. The wind ceased. And the scripture says, and there was a great calm. Not just any calm, but a great calm. Because when you have a calm on the inside, a peace on the inside, it creates a stillness to the chaos all around you. When the Pharisees try to trap and trick Jesus, Jesus didn't go at them. Jesus didn't get in a heated shouting match with them. He said, let me tell you a little story. I wish I was there to hear Jesus. It's like, that's Jesus' response, you know. They're trying to, you know, press him and stick him. And he said, well, let me tell you a little story. Very calmly, you know, he's like the wise guy who doesn't get upset, but you know he's going to get you back, right? And he just, let me just tell you a little story here, right? See, Jesus wants to give us that same peace power, the power to remain calm on the inside and therefore optimally function 
Because when we're not calm, we can't function the way God created us to. And the key is, again, stay calm inside, slow down inside when everything's speeding up outside. But then it also has not just a functional effect on us, but it has a spiritual effect on us. Word. The devil is after your inner peace because that's where your power to handle and overcome the impossible lies. That's where your ability to function fully in life and in God come from in a world of ever-increasing chaos. Matter of fact, let me help you with this. I want you to just practice saying something with me. Matter of fact, you can use it all throughout the week whenever life gets chaotic. Say this with me. I will not allow the chaos on the outside. I will not allow the chaos on the outside to disturb my peace on the inside. Anytime life starts to speed up, intentionally slow down. Just break. Say, no, no, I'm not going there. Because my peace is on the line. Matter of fact, did you know that the biblical word for worry means a divided mind? A divided mind. And it leads to spiritual detriment, if you will. James chapter 1 verse number 5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he that doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Double-mindedness is not just the byproduct of not necessarily having the capacity to believe God for something. The capacity to believe God for things is often interfered with when worry enters into your life because everything else outside is chaotic and fast and you haven't yet slowed down. Notice worry or double-mindedness hurts both our faith and our function. Our faith in that it stands in the way of our relationship with God and our function because it creates instability in life. Worry has a lot of consequences to it. The enemy is after our worry. But here's the thing, when you boil it all down to it, worry doesn't work. Worry doesn't work. It would make sense if it didn't make us sick and kill us, maybe. It would make sense if it didn't impede our ability to function. It would make sense if it didn't hurt our faith. But there's no value in worry. Matter of fact, Jesus said, can all of your worries add a single moment to your life? From the words of the master, worry is a waste of time and precious energy. Don't worry. Be happy, as the song says. It's into this context that David says, he leads me beside still waters. He offers me peace and calm in the midst of chaos. And David needed this peace because contrary to popular or certain belief that a blessed life is a problem-free life, David had many, many, many opportunities to worry. He could have worried when he was an overlooked shepherd boy. Will my family ever love me? Will I ever be given an opportunity to succeed? He could have worried when he went out against Goliath. Will I make it out alive? He could have worried when Saul was hunting him. Will I ever become king? He could have worried when he lost his child. Will I ever be happy again? He could have worried when he sipped from the fountain of sin with Bathsheba. Will I ever be forgiven again? David had many opportunities to lose his peace and therefore his faith and his function. But he learned the antidote to worry. And he said, it's in the still waters of the shepherd. 
It's the peace of God. Last week, I talked to you about two types of righteousness, right? The righteousness that is God's gift, right? And the other righteousness that is our grind, one that is what one that is has everything to do with the work of God, the other that has everything to do with our personal walk. But today I want to talk to you about two kinds of peace that the Bible talks about. The first is peace with God. Peace with God. This is a peace that is given to us when we make Jesus our Lord and Savior. Anyone who has not made Jesus their Lord and Savior is loved by God, but is not at peace with God. Matter of fact, the Bible says anybody who has not made Jesus their Lord and Savior, although loved, is an enemy of God. I mean, listen to this. Romans chapter 5, verse number 8. God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, God loved us even when we were apart from Christ. Anybody who is not in Christ is loved by God. Listen to me. Not excused by God. How many of you know you can love somebody but not excuse their behavior? And see, this is where we get all mixed up in the world because we think, you know, we can't say right and wrong and all this kind of stuff and who are we and, you know, all that kind of jazz and, and that's not really love. No, you can love somebody but not excuse their behavior. And you can love somebody and still be alienated from so, somebody. They were, he was loved us while we were still sinners much more than having now been justified just as if we never sinned by his blood. We shall be saved from wrath through him. Watch this. For if when we were enemies prior to Jesus, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. The peace of God is what's needed for anybody who is apart from Christ, has not made Jesus the Lord of their life. Even though they are loved, they are an enemy by virtue of their unforgiven sin. Sin that doesn't go under the blood of Christ is held to our charge. But sin that goes over the blood, goes under the blood, can never be found again, right? As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And because our sin, apart from Christ, makes us an enemy of God, we need to have peace with God. We need something to give us that peace. And by the way, I love this. When we make Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior, we get cleansed from that sin. And watch this. Romans chapter 5, verse number 10, Good News Translation. We were God's enemies, but he made us his friends through the death of his son, now that we are God's friends, how much more will we be saved by Christ's life? No more enemies, friends. Let me say it again. No more enemies, friends. I am a friend of God. You are a friend of God. And that should blow your mind, by the way. No need to get in with the in crowd because you're in with the creator of the universe. He won't gossip with you, but he'll share his gifts with you. He won't abandon you or be disloyal to you because he's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. He won't compete with you, but he will share everything he has with you. He won't drag you down, but always help you to get over. He, You can tell him your secrets and he won't tell nobody. And more importantly, he'll share his secrets with you so that you can live an abundant life. And he's a friend when you spend time with him, you don't feel drained. Matter of fact, when you spend time with him, you want to spend more time with him. We're friends of God. It should blow our mind to think that God would even want to be friends with us. The peace of God. I'm sorry, the peace with God. 
peace with God. Peace with God. I'm saying with intentionally, with accentuation on purpose. This is the first kind of peace. It can only be had through becoming born again by repenting of your sins, by asking God to forgive you, by making Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior. You go from an enemy to a friend, from a sinner to a saint, from from somebody who's in the world to somebody who is now in the family of God. This is our peace for eternity. This is the peace that makes sure that we are eternally secure. But then there is a second kind of peace. It's not peace with God. It is the peace of God. And I want you to notice this. There's so many benefits to the peace of God. First of all, it rules. Colossians chapter 3, verse number 15. And let the peace of God rule your hearts, to which you are also called in one body, and be thankful. Notice this is a peace that rules within you. This is the calm on the inside. This is the slow down when everything else is speeding up. Instead of you being circumstance ruled, you can be peace ruled. Very literally, this is a peace that calls the shots in your life. The word in the original language is is umpire. Let let peace be the umpire of your heart. It means it gets to tell whether a circumstance is a ball or a strike in your life. Whether it gets to affect you to the point that you're worried and double-minded or there's a peace despite your circumstances. It's a ruling peace. And then it's described as a peace that passes all understanding. Philippians chapter 4 verse 7. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. This is the calmness of the quarterback under pressure. This is your calm during the chaos of life. You should be panicking, but instead there is a peace. You should be losing your mind because of what's happening to you, happened to you, but instead you have a peace. You should be frantic and fearful because of the circumstances surrounding you, behind you or before you, but there is a peace that surpasses, that is greater than, that is more real, that is stronger than all of the chaos. It is a peace that protects your heart. That's your relationship with Christ. And your mind, that's your functionality. See, worry affects your faith and your function. But peace protects your heart and your mind. See, God wants to give us that kind of peace. But then look at this. It protects us against the enemy. The peace of God protects us from the plans of the enemy because the enemy, listen to me, is looking for somebody who is weak-minded to attack. Matter of fact, when the Bible says we're not ignorant of the devil's devices, the word devices in the Greek is nomadic, means mind games. And this is why it takes a sick and twisted individual to play mind games with other people. Satanic in every way. That's why the scripture says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Don't, don't, don't fool with people. It's a mind game. And, and the enemy looks for the weak-minded to pray on. But the peace of God protects our mind and our heart. And it's one of the weapons that God gives us to live this life to keep the enemy under our feet. Watch this. Ephesians chapter 6 verse number 10 says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles, that means the mind games, of the devil. Verse number 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand therefore, having girded your worst waist with truth, 
having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Notice where peace is in the weaponry. It's on your feet. Why? Because the peace with God is for eternity. The peace of God is for your walk here on this earth. And when you walk in the peace of God, the enemy's adversity doesn't rule over you, but rather it remains under you. In other words, what's happening to you doesn't get in you, doesn't control you. It stays under you when you have the peace of God. If you know anything about a Roman soldier and his his uniform or his, his weaponry, if you will, he has these, these spikes on the bottom of his feet that are like six inches long. They were meant to cut in fight. And what God is telling us is that peace helps us to puncture the problems that the enemy sends our way in order to destroy our lives. When you have the peace of God, it passes all understanding. You're able to function despite what's happening to you. Where do we find this peace? Only found in the shepherd. And it's better than the world's peace. Matter of fact, John chapter 14, verse 27. Here's what Jesus said. He said, peace I leave you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives, give I unto you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let it be afraid. How does the world give peace? When everything is going good, you got peace. When circumstances go bad, you lose your peace. That's the world's peace. But Jesus says, I give a different kind of peace. A peace that when all hell is breaking loose, you could remain calm. You could remain at rest. You see, the world has to have a reason to have peace. We don't need a reason. We've got a revelation. See, reason destroys peace. Revelation creates peace. It's a revelation that says, I know the shepherd. A revelation that says, I know he cares for me. A revelation that says, I know his eye is on the sparrow, so he's watching after me. A revelation that says, no matter what comes my way, it's working for my good. A revelation that says, no matter what it looks like, he's leading me. A revelation that says, I know it doesn't look like it right now, but I got a feeling everything is going to be all right. A revelation that says, he's the shepherd, I'm a sheep. I've got peace because I know the Prince of peace. See, the way Jesus gives peace is different than the world gives peace. And I want to close with this one final thought. And and I know this message is short tonight because the second part of the message would have been too long and I couldn't break it. So this is where I'm breaking it. What's this key? One key, Pastor. How do I get this kind of peace? Listen to what David said. David said, he leads me. Beside still waters. What does that mean? It means if you want this kind of peace, you've got to let him lead. When you let him lead, you are always sure that he has gone before you. And if he has gone before you, you know that he's cleared the way and anything that remains in the way, he left behind because he knows you can handle it. But when you take the lead, you've got to fight everything that is before you. And I don't know about you, but I want as much cleared in front of me as is humanly possible or divinely possible. So we let him lead. If he, if he, he won't lead you, listen to, he won't lead you where he won't keep you. 
Where he guides, he provides. If he leads me into it, he'll lead me through it. If he leads me in it, he'll make sure that I win it. When he is in front, he fights first. When he is ahead, I won't be found dead. When he goes first, I won't thirst. Let him lead in your life. But oftentimes we like to take the lead. And packed into these three little words... He leads me. Is is David's conclusion about life. You know, when somebody's lived for God or lived through it all, I want to hear what they have to say. I want I, I had the I had the pleasure of sitting in the company of a 82-year-old minister who is still as 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 full of reason and intellect and all that as it possibly could be. You would never tell he was 82. And he was just sharing certain things with us. And you know, and, uh, and anytime anybody asked a question of all of us, we all just looked at it. Let him speak. He's 82. He served God his entire life. He's got to know something that he can deposit on the inside of us. David's conclusion to life, let him lead. I'm sure David is thinking back over all the times that he took the lead versus when he allowed God to lead. David was saying, as I look back, here's what I would say. When I let God lead, I lived in peace. But when I took the reins, the enemy ruled me with worry. When I allowed God to lead, even when I was overlooked by my family, my faith was not shaken because I had a peace that said promotion comes from God and can't nobody take it from me. When I allowed God to lead, I had a peace when I went up against Goliath, even though everybody else was worried because I knew if God led me into battle, he would look after me during the fight. When I allowed God to lead, I had a peace about saying to Saul, thank you, but I don't need your armor for this fight because I'm at peace with the person and the gifts that God has given me to fight with. When I allowed God to lead, I listened to my conscience. Instead of killing the king who was hurt, who was hunting me, I pulled back instead of paid back because I realized that God had my back. When I allowed God to lead, I didn't try to make it to the throne on my own. Even though Jonathan was my best friend, it was next in line for that position. I could have worried about it. I could have been jealous of him. I could have tried to outdo him. I could have lost a friend. But I had a peace from God that God would make a way. And you know what? One day he did. And Jonathan came to me and he said, you will be king and I will be second to you. And instead of losing a friend, peace allowed my life to be blessed. When I allowed God to lead, I didn't quit my job as a minstrel for the king that was trying to kill me. I had a peace that God would protect me. And while I was in the palace, he would train me for the place that he would eventually place me. But then, when I took the lead, my life was filled with worry and heartache. I took the lead and I laid with Bathsheba. I took the lead, I committed murder. I took the lead and I laid awake at night worrying about the consequences. I took the lead and I lost my ability to function and my faith began to grow weak. I took the lead. I lost control of my house and my family. I took the lead. I became blinded to how blessed I was. I took the lead and my enemies got inside me. I took the lead and lost the power of peace and watched the enemy wage war on my life with waves of worry. I learned something about the human condition, David said, and that is we need a shepherd to lead us to the place of still waters. And now as I look back, here's what he's saying. I want to help somebody. And by the way, did you know, I've shared this before, 
two ways to learn in life. If you're pig-headed, you learn from mistakes. It's a horrible teacher. It's an unnecessary teacher. The best way to learn is mentors. Mentors and mistakes. You could benefit from somebody who's already made the mistake instead of thinking that you know better than everybody else. And listen to me, kids. The worst thing kids can do is shut off godly parents. It's the worst thing that they can do. Because what you're doing is you're saying, I'm pig-headed enough to learn from my own mistakes instead of listening to the wisdom that God has put on the inside of you. And David is saying, I'm looking back on life right now. And he's saying, I've got something to share. And that is the shepherd leads us to still waters. And so the message is, let him lead. Let him lead in your marriage. Let him lead in raising your children. Let him lead on your job. Let him lead in your finances. Let him lead in your decisions, both the big ones and the smalls. Let him lead in your choice of friends. Let him lead in your reaction to people, to circumstances, to problems. Let him lead when you're on the mountaintop and when you're in the valley. Let him lead when life is good so you don't forget who made it that good. Let him lead when life is not good so the enemy doesn't shipwreck your faith. Let him lead. If he says no... It's no. If he says yes, it's yes. If he says jump, you do say how high. If he says go, you say, you get moving. If he says stay, then be still. If he says wait, be patient. If he says bless, you say who. If he says give, you say how much. If he says stop, quit it. If he says keep going, give it everything you got. If he says forgive, let it go. If he says don't respond, shut your big mouth. If he says speak up, shout it from the mountaintop. Mike? Oh, here we go. (laughs) Let him lead. We do ourselves an amazing disservice in life when we take the reins instead of letting God lead. Now, next week, I'm going to show you how to let God lead because God leads in very definitive ways. He leads in small ways and big ways. And if we don't get the small ones right, we'll never learn from, we'll never uh, experience his leadership in the big ones. But my message to you is very simply this. You want peace. Let God lead your life. Would you stand on your feet?